Hey, welcome to the Michelle Mission Two Men One Podcast. Every black film ever made. My name is Len, aka the Bat Tribble. And as always, I am joined by my partner. Hey, this is Vincent Williams. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we are very, very proud to bring you another entry in the long filmography of one and deep, dearly departed Cecily Tyson. As yes, yes. Vincent brings to the mission 1981's Bustin' Loose, starring Richard Pryor along with Ms. Tyson and directed by Oz Scott or was that Michael Schultz? We shall Mm. see. We shall see. Mm. But before we get into any of that, ladies and gentlemen, as always, we want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you that are out there watching us as we are streaming live on YouTube as well as on Facebook. And I see you all in the chat saying hello to everyone uh, to to each of us, as well as to each other, Robert Monroe, Aaron Fry, Bree Bree five seventeen, Deborah Battle. I see each and every one of you out there. Hello, hello what's going hello. on, folks? Good evening. Good evening. All righty, Vince, how are you doing, my good friend? I am fine. I am fine. Enjoying the weather. Enjoying the weather. I'm not going to get pulled in and say spring is sprung, but I am enjoying the weather. You know. Feeling good. And yourself? I cannot complain. I cannot complain at all. Uh, We have letters, Vince. Oh, always so nice. They're like little gifts every week. (laughs) We have correspondence from our uh, listeners. This email comes from Daria Benson in regards to our review of Mudbound. Oh, hey, Daria. Like you, Vince, I was reluctant to see this film. Thank you, Len, for the selection. While your review Mm -hmm. encouraged me to finally watch, it was even more. All the performances were outstanding. The screenplay had many levels and the direction superb. Thank you again for your mission. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for listening and, and, and reinforce her reinforcement of what I said. I'm I'm so happy that you chose that, Lynn. Oh. Because again, I never would have watched it. <laughs> I know. I know. So, In so. regards to our review of Mudbound, we also heard from Deuce Brown on Instagram. Who What's up, us, Deuce Brown? Let us know. It's great to hear you guys give Jason Clark his due. I've, I've appreciated his acting nuance since his role as John Red Hamilton in Johnny Depp's Public Enemies. He dies really good. <laughs> yeah, he's one of those great character actors. You know, you know, we love the character actors. Yeah. And, I, he, and he's very much one of those. Wasn't he in something? Guys. But yeah. but but he yeah, he was fantastic. I enjoyed him in, um, speaking of that, there was a Western, uh, Winchester, that he was very good in. And he was also excellent in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And that's and that's where I recognize him from most recently. And like you said, he was very good in that. Yeah, yeah. Good actor. Very you know, in a role that didn't necessarily need the nuance. Exactly, yeah. You could have easily, like, uh, you know... Uh, like nobody is really there for the character work. We're there for monkeys on horses. 
Yes. Which was part of the early ad campaign. I don't know if that made it to print. Very true. Which- Planet of the Apes. Monkeys on horses. <laughs> I mean, it, it when it when it showed up in the trailer, I mean, it, that sold it. <laughs> the, like the trailer could have just been that, and I'd have been like, "I'm there. I am Look, there." You, you know, I'm a Planet of the Apes dude. So, like the original Planet of the Apes with the ape, like apes on horses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's quite an image. I mean, when you, I mean, that's the first. That's the first thing you really see in the Charlton Heston one. Yep. That lets you know, oh, this is wild right here. <laughs> that monkey's on a horse. Now, you are a huge Planet of the Apes fan, and I mean, maybe we've covered I this am. before in the mission, so forgive yeah. me. But were you a fan of the the prequel trilogy from the, the past few years? I am. Yeah. I, I am. I really am. Like, yeah, I thought it was... I thought it was remarkably well done mm-hmm. again better than it had any right to be mm-hmm. but then you know i'm also a friend fan of that bonkers tim burton one really really it's not good it's not good no it's not but it's so bizarre mm-hmm. yeah. it's the most bizarre and, and it's from that wonderful period that has sort of petered out where Tim Burton kept getting these huge budgets mm-hmm. for his fever dreams. Yeah. Like somebody was like, I, I mean, I guess we got to give Tim Burton a big budget. And then Tim Burton made like four or five really bizarre films. And Planet of the Apes was very much one of them. Yeah. I can't help but think about that movie. I don't know if you know this story. Uh, do you remember the um, controversy with... Um Marky Mark in regards and some comments he made about Helen Bottom Carter in that movie. Vaguely. Remind me. Uh, he was appearing on Howard Stern at the time of the film to promote the film. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were going on about the the makeup work on, you know, on the monkeys. And, I, I remember this. And Helen Bottom Carter is, plays one of the monkeys in the movie. And... Uh, Mark Wahlberg, you know, says that, you know, oh, she looked amazing. She looked amazing in the uh, in the costume, in the in the monkey suit. Oh, my God. She she looked just like Janet Jackson. Yeah. 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 That was. uh, Yeah, that was that did not go over well. Right, right, right. It's the type of thing that Mark Wahlberg doesn't like us to remember. No. But the North remembers. (laughs) I see what you did there. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, and we uh, like each and every one of you. Thank you, all of you that emails us at mission at gmail.com. Thank you, each and every one. We like that. Okay, Vince, Podglomerate has a new podcast debuting, Green Eggs and Dan. Oh. Because everyone eats. Yes. Uh, I think their mission is to tell you what the food in your refrigerator says about you. Interesting. I don't know if they want to look at the food in my refrigerator. I about to say, what's in your refrigerator? I just threw out four-week-old cheesecake. <laughs> I mean, it was good cheesecake at one time, um, but but not four weeks later. But but four weeks later, it was pretty much it was a mercy killing. Right, 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 right. You know? 
Um, what is what do you have in your? If we were to look into your refrigerator vents, what would we? A surprising amount of cauliflower. Cauliflower. Yes, cauliflower rice, mashed cauliflower. I eat a surprising amount of cauliflower. What did that say about you? I don't know, but I'm sure Dan could tell us. I'm sure comedian Dan Adut could tell us on Green Eggs and Dan, a new show on Podglomerate where Dan will talk with comedians, writers, actors, and even chefs about what they love most. Guess what that is, Vince? Food? Ding, 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 circle gets the square. (laughs) The conversation starts by delving deep into the natural picture of the guest refrigerator, and then it goes from there. They're actually going to be looking in people's refrigerator, Vince. Wow. That's, um... That's boldly going where... That's very bold. No one has gone before. (laughs) Check out Green Eggs and Dan on the Podglomerate and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, listen, join the conversation. Speaking of monkeys, Vince. (laughs) Ooh, this... Where is this transition going? I'll tell you exactly where it's going. It's going to the theater because okay. this week, actually tomorrow. I was about to say tomorrow. Premiering in theaters as well as, I believe, on HBO Max. Godzilla versus King Kong. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I. Yes, sir. Not wait and here's why i cannot wait i am a loyal subscriber to hbo max i enjoy hbo max i watch something okay. on it almost every weekend okay and i am will dutifully watch godzilla versus king kong on hbo max but not this weekend because okay. this weekend on friday i am going to the drive-in here in philadelphia at the Navy Yard to watch Godzilla versus King Kong the way it is meant to be seen. Nice. I I am learning right now in real time that is is it playing all weekend? Yes. Huh. It is playing all weekend. I am going to the 8 p.m. show on Friday at the Navy Yard to see Godzilla versus King Kong on the huge drive-in screen. Interesting. How does that work? So you, you had to buy tickets already? I bought those tickets this afternoon, my friend. Interesting. So it might be sold out. You know, I got a funny feeling it's not sold out. Because, <laughs> I mean, because not- that is very interesting. What else is playing? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Right. I, I have absolutely no care. It's, it's Godzilla versus King Kong. There is no re- like I cannot watch that film on my TV. I have a nice size TV. I don't want to the first time I watch that film, I want it to be on a huge screen. That's fair. That is fair. Well, if somehow I go this weekend, I'm probably going to watch it before then, but that's fair. Oh my god. You know it's already premiered overseas and has made 130 million dollars over there look man look <laughs> you know I already tried to pull me you know what i'm gonna just all right i'm gonna let y'all let y'all see how the sausage is made here we go <laughs> lynn webb gave me the heads up before we started yo we got kind of time constraints 
We're going to try and hit this time. And I said, okay, okay, we can do this. Because we, we one take Lynn, one take Vince when we need to be. And then we start, you get all these people in here. You start with Planet of the Apes. <laughs> then you go into Godzilla. I mean, what, what 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 do you want from me, man? Like, hey, hey, Lynn, hey, Lynn. When this is over, you want to talk about um uh a seventies uh, jazz funk that Blue Note made? <laughs> hey, Vince. You know what I was also listening to? Some Bobby Hutcherson. Like that's what you you want to do that too? Like, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay on course. I know, I know. Uh, Robert Monroe let me know that Godzilla versus King Kong is playing in at the drive-ins. Unfortunately, it's a double feature with Tom and Jerry. Mm. Now, well, then you can go get snacks. <laughs> I can't get an hour and a half worth of snacks, but um. <laughs> Cause then I'll be asleep when Godzilla versus King Kong. <laughs> but um, but I actually heard good things about Tom and Jerry, so I won't mind. I'll sit and watch it. Okay, all right, all right. What the heck? What the heck? Uh, anyway. Oh, um. So speaking of back on track, Vincent. Uh, yes. I put an article from the Hollywood Reporter. I actually put it in the uh, Facebook group for all of you to check out. There was a really cool article about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier that was yes. in the uh, Facebook feed. I mean, the, the, from the Hollywood Hollywood Reporter. And um, the article talks about how Falcon and the Winter Soldier uncovers Marvel's original sin. Um, and that being the legacy of one Isaiah Bradley, the, some would say the, uh, the, I guess the second Captain America, the, well, 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 yeah. Cause, cause they, um, they've kind of like re reworked things. Yeah. 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 Um, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so 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 if, if for spoiler alert for those who ha- did not watch last week's episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus, which if you are, it, it's an uh, excellent series. I'm actually really Look, enjoying it. Malcolm Spellman is killing it. The second episode, which is titled "The Star Spangled Man," um, in there, Bucky reveals to Falcon Sam uh, a secret one that he kept from Steve Rogers that America had another secret sol- super soldier that it used and later abused during the Korean War one Isaiah Bradley and if the name is not a clue to you Isaiah Bradley is a black man uh, he was first introduced <laughs> in the Marvel comics back in 2003 in the miniseries Truth Red Black Red, White, and Black, which was written by the late Robert Morales and illustrated mm-hmm. by uh, Kyle Baker. Within that book, it was revealed that Steve Rogers was w- within the book. It was revealed that Steve Rogers was not the first or only soldier to undergo 
to go Project Rebirth. The U.S. government experiment, experimented on 300 black soldiers in a, an attempt to recreate the super soldier form serum in 1942. Um, and when the government, they ultimately, one of those soldiers being Isaiah Bradley, who, as the last soldier to survive those experiments became the government's weapon fighting facing all the obstacles but receiving none of the glory that steve rogers received um truth was a heralded and very but controversial um very controversial miniseries when it was released in 2003 because of this reimagining of not necessarily captain america's origin but captain america relationship with America and the Marvel Universe's relationship with Black America. And because of some of the hard questions that that book um, posed, the the book was allowed to basically fade away from consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has not right. ever been reprinted. Now, the characters from that book, Isaiah Bradley, and then subsequently his son, uh, who his son is Josiah, Josiah X. Josiah X, right? Because remember he was a Muslim, right? 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 And then Josiah's son, Isaiah's grandson, um, they they eventually did work their way into be mentioned into the Marvel universe, and they kind of like tweaked his story a little mm-hmm. bit since then. Yeah. Um, and this was the first mentioning of the character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that, and just, you know, some of the hard questions that this this series asks of a black man's role in this universe really makes for some interesting television being produced on Disney+. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I applaud Malcolm Spellman. I applaud... When I heard his name... Mm-hmm. When he walked in and said, you know, Isaiah Bradley, you could hear the gasp of black nerds throughout America. Yep. Yep. Because it really was this, you know, it was this, it was that weird, not to get too inside baseball-y, but it was part of that Marvel Knights moment mm-hmm. where Joe uh, Casada, I always mispronounce his last name, Joe Casada really gave these writers free reign to do this really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, Robert Morales made it. And, and they retconned it immediately because I believe in the original miniseries, Isaiah Bradley was first. Yeah, see, that's what I remember too. It was, it was, it was, and, and obviously it, it alluded to the Tuskegee experiment and all of the medical crimes that have been committed against black people since slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and when they perfected it with Isaiah Bradley, then they brought Steve Rogers in. Right. And as you said, Immediately they retconned it. Yeah. So that they said that they tried to duplicate it after Steve Rogers. And then as you said, they stopped talking about it. Yeah, for a long they time. They just stopped talking about it. And it, it's funny. So, you know, me and my boys, we, you know, it's like my crew, and two of us are like the comic dudes. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, when we watch the Marvel stuff, we basically become like LeVar Burton at the end of Reading Rainbow. <laughs> like 
if you liked WandaVision, you should read the Vision miniseries Ex- by Tom King. Like, right. you know, and and I said, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You should read Truth because, you know, I got my copy. So I said, you know, go get Truth and, and then discovered not only is it out of print, it's been out of print. It's been out of print. It's been out of print. Yeah. It's available digitally. Mm-hmm. Like, like you know, on the Marvel Unlimited app, and like, um, like, like you can download it to your Kindle. But Marvel, I mean, I, it was it was crazy as soon as it came out. Yeah, it was controversial, and I am, you know, you always feel weird applauding Disney, like this huge behemoth, but it really is again and again. Disney gives these creators space mm-hmm. to do, you know, whether we're talking about uh, Black Panther, whether we're talking about WandaVision, whether we're, you know, where where these creators have this space mm-hmm. to work. And and again, I have to say, as somebody who read the 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 Sam Wilson Captain America comics when he was cap, like he was Captain America for like two three years in the comics. And they never really dealt with this the way just these past two episodes are already kind of revving up and then pulling in Isaiah Bradley. This 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 is really, really good stuff. Now, when you say that they didn't really deal with this, are you speaking of specifically in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier where Sam Wilson the Anthony Mackie character, for people that don't know, um, the Falcon, he gave up the shield. One, right. because, you know, as far as in his mind, the, the government was saying like, hey, we want to use it as a symbol for this museum or whatever, whatever. Sure. But also he was giving it up because he recognized what it would mean for him, a black man, to exactly. be Captain America, and, exactly, and all of the troubles that that, that you know th- that would bring upon him. And was that never a part, of really? Uh, uh, I mean, in the in the Falcon books, I didn't read. Them. Lynn, Lynn, you know how this works. Periodically, they replace the the real character with right. a replacement character, right, right, right. and you know it's more the same. But and then a lot of it is, oh, I'll never live up to the mm. legend of fill in the blank. But it's not racial. Okay, so then, so yeah, they it's didn't go- just I'm the you know I'm just the replacement. No one's right. ever going to look at right. me like the real right. you know intellectual property man. Right. But blah blah blah, and then you go for eighteen months, and then you know now he's back. Right. Better right. than ever. Right. I don't recall, and the fact that I don't recall, I think is telling because I pay attention to this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't recall anything outside of the, oh, no one will ever respect me as much as they did the original yeah. type of hand wringing. Yeah. Okay. Whereas already in these two episodes, whether we're talking about the bank loan situation, whether we're talking about that wonderful scene with the police, mm-hmm. oh whether we're talking about the amazingly loaded conversation between um, Rhodey 
Oh yeah, and 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 Sam Wilson. Right. That that wasn't you know, and again, he was you know for like two years he was like mm-hmm. Captain America. And I don't remember anything, anything really. Right. So, okay. uh, Deborah Battle in the chat is, is shouting out Carl Lumley uh, for his portrayal mm-hmm. of, of uh, Isaiah Bradley. And yes, because he, he wears the scars of that character all over his face. He definitely does. Deborah yeah. says that she met Carl Lumley in 1984 when he came to our high school with Morgan Free- Freeman and Robert Earl Jones, father of James. Uh, they were there uh, doing gospel at the uh, Kennedy kennedy center um carl lumbly actually was a guest on the black tribbles show some mm-hmm. some time ago and we talked to him about um being uh of course this was before isaiah bradley so we talked to him about you know being manimal and um mantis not manimal. Uh, mantis like mantis that's right yeah. he was mantis um talked about mantis and talked about his voice work as john jones on um uh, the Justice League animated series, and he told us uh, he told us a, a very cool story about how he always wanted to wear sneakers as a little kid, but his parents wouldn't let him wear sneakers. Like they wouldn't let him wear sneakers; they barely let him wear jeans. And he was just a real big nerd, and he was talking about how he had never really talked about how he was a nerd, but he was he's been outed out on the Black Tribbles as a nerd, and then he took the oath, and now he's Jones Tribble. In Tribble Nation, it was, it was really and that's cool. a wonderful story. And then, not to be too inside baseball-y, even more in geeky, but certainly the meta casting of Carl Lumley mm-hmm. as a black early black superhero that was done wrong, in my mind, is a direct reference to what happened with Mantis. Yeah, because that show did not last at all. It did not last, and remember they they jacked it all up trying to bring in a wider audience. I said I I don't remember that at all. I barely remember. Oh show. my god! You know, you, of course you do because you know this is one of my nerd rage things. Here we go. Remember, Mantis came on. It was like the the movie, and it was like blue, black, black. It was like Mantis, and he had these two African assistants who may as well have been from Wakanda. Mm. Like like they were super scientists, but it was like they were actually Afrofuturistic, and it was just black, black, blackity black. That's right. And, and they then they like re- wrote them out. They wrote them out, revamped it, and then there was a cool, edgy white kid with a backwards baseball cap and a and a skateboard, and they yeah. took all the racial markers out of it, which then made it whack. Yeah, yeah, and it got I, canceled immediately. I do remember that, and as, as a matter of fact, you bringing that up, it reminded me he d- he did touch on that in the interview. Yeah, it was pretty cool, pretty dope. So, um, Robert Moreau Jr. says that the cop scene reminded him of a version of the joke, "What do you call a black man who's a superhero?" That's right. Yeah, that's right. The black man. All right, all right. So um, there you go. Uh, looking at the time it's a good time for us to get into our review vince all right let's get into our review of busting loose we'll be back with the film review as soon as we do something funky and have steps in it Richard Pryor is Joe Braxton. He's an ex-con. You know what I was in prison for, Joe? What? what? Murder. 
with a mean <laughs> parole officer. I'm gonna burn your butt on this one, man. Yeah. Braxton's bad. Stop the bus! Shut up! I don't like your attitude. So what? I mean, he's <laughs> really bad. <laughs> and he's busting loose. Big money changes hands back there. Action out here, too. Some big money could change hands there, too, huh? Richard Pryor. You fool! And Cicely Tyson. Bustin' loose. Don't forget it. Try me one time, you understand? Get me working on a mother. Richard Pryor and Cicely Tyson in Bustin' Loose. Bustin' Loose, a 1981 American comedy drama directed by I. Mm. Scott with uncredited directorial chops by Michael Schultz. Uh, stars Richard Pryor, Cecily Tyson in this comedy that tells the story of a director of a foster home who was forced to move her kids from Philadelphia to Seattle in a broken down bus driven by a fast talking parolee assigned to the task. This film was Vincent's selection for this stop on the Michelle mission. Vincent, what say you of busting loose? Well, everything I'm about to say, you should take with a grain of salt because busting loose is bulletproof with me. And it is impossible for me to be objective with this film. And if we have time, as we said, we were under a tight schedule, so we'll see how things go. At some point, I will regale you all with the saga of Vince in the Bustin' Loose soundtrack. All right. But needless to say, I have a really difficult time having a cold, detached eye with this film. Having said that, I think this film is okay. I think this film is okay. And I think this film certainly serves the purpose that I wanted it to on this show, which was to highlight Cecily Tyson. Mm. And, and as, as a, as a, a, as a, an actress and as a person, this story of this director of this, um, of, of, of this group home with these kids, the, you know, an orphanage basically. And she gets permission or she moves some paperwork around because that's a little unclear actually, mm-hmm. where she takes these eight kids across the country who all have really deep set problems. And she's going to raise them on a farm in Seattle and her boyfriend who is a probation officer blackmails uh, blackmails one of his clients played by Richard Pryor to drive the bus the plot is preposterous <laughs> the the plot makes absolutely no sense and this plot is so preposterous that when i like there's never been one moment that i've watched this film like even when i was 11 12 and i said this makes no sense mm. whatsoever as a plot. 
But once you get past that, like if you are able to suspend your disbelief about this plot, which in in, in all fairness, I, I do think moving into the 80s, this was not the only film during the 80s that had this sort of bananas plot okay. that audiences were asked to accept and then go along with the ride. There are... There are big chunks of this film that I like. There are big chunks of this film that I like. First, I like the kids in this film because the kids are jerks. <laughs> like these like these are like kids. And and I think that the performances across the board you understand that these are really annoying kids. Mhm. And these are kids that get on your nerves. And I think that's hard to pull off. We've talked about it before with, with, with a few of these films. Child actors being able to capture that alchemy mm-hmm. of kids being annoying. And, and you know, to like, a lot of, like kids are assholes. Yeah. And yet there's something about kids that make you love them. And it's this really, really thin line mm-hmm. that I think a lot of these actors, these young actors, are able to carry off. Not only are they jerks, but you know, there there's some real like some of these kids have real issues. Well, that's the you whole know, idea. They one... are troubled kids, so right. But it's not it's it's not like movie troubled kids, like you know, a Johnny Depp type. Sitting right. and and you know he's got like a a plaid shirt that he tore the sleeves off, right? Like right. one of these kids was had, was a power man. Like he 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 accidentally killed his parents. Mm-hmm. I I think it is a pretty unflinching look at a young woman who has been sexually assaulted since she was a child. Oh yes, in the young uh, in Annie and and. Annie and 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 dealing with Annie like this this is not something that really pulls punches this it's a kid who's blind and kind of navigating blindness and I thought it was striking that they showed him with no glasses on it I don't know if the actor was actually blind but it is it is striking mm-hmm. um I really like Cicely Tyson's role in this film like like I like I, I like that Cicely Tyson is a lady like mm. she's actually a lady like she has this costuming detail where she always wears white gloves mm-hmm. and 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 you know she's very proper but she's very sort of formidable what i put in my book in my notes is that in 1981 she's giving you claire huxtable energy four years before claire huxtable is on the cosby show okay and not to put too fine of a point on it i think it is significant that this role is played by Cicely Tyson, a darker-skinned black actress. Frankly, women who look like Cicely Tyson don't get to play roles like this. The leading and romantic this, lead in a the leading. I mean, I mean she has two suitors. Mm-hmm. She has two suitors, and again, this is not somebody who who basically. Everyone is in love with her because of, quote unquote, how strong she is. Mm-hmm. Like she is delicate. She is a lady. Like I said, she you, you're not going to speak a certain way in front of me. I don't like you smoking. I wear these these gloves. So I love that just as 
an image. Gotcha. Richard Pryor, you know, look, we've talked about Richard Pryor, and and I think this is 1981. I think he is better in this film than he is in some of his later films. I don't think he's as good in this film as he is in films that came before this, Mm. frankly. But I actually like Richard Pryor with kids. And it's something that you don't see that often. Like, like they're just talking about uh, quick shows. Like, if you've ever, if you ever saw episodes of Pryor's Place, yeah, his uh, Saturday the, morning, the, the kitchen, the Saturday morning show he had for like four episodes. But I like Richard Pryor with kids because there's a softness and and this kind of sweetness and vulnerability hmm. that Richard Pryor has. That when he's with kids. And it clicks, it clicks really well. Like the aforementioned uh, character, Annie. There's a wonderful scene with Annie where Annie is showing affection the only way she's known how because she's been sexually assaulted her whole life. And this is the only way she knows to show men that she likes them. And Richard Pryor is gruff and and sort of like 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 he, he you know you don't do this and this that and the other but there's this real concern underneath mm. that he shows with her and it's paralleled in a few other scenes with these kids mm-hmm. like at the end he kind of you know you know you know y'all aren't losers and this that and the other oh yeah and i and i like that like i like richard pryor at that speed the same time i actually kind of liked him and cecily tyson together mm. like i said i like cecily tyson as the love interests and but Deborah, Richard Pro- it, it, Deborah Battle real quick just points out how Cecily Tyson was actually in her mid 50s when she made this film look I never go down that road how old these like you, you know these black don't crack these, these people 80 90 100 years old sure you know but but it works mm-hmm. you know it works and I like that you know the film falls apart basically the last half hour like it's a road trip film you you see where you you know you see where the things are going it's a very comfortable rhythm it's an hour they're on the bus uh i I don't really have much to say about the direction like it's breezy you know the thing moves along last half hour they throw in a monkey wrench about they need some money to save the farm like they literally need to save the farm right and and it kind of falls apart like for the the last 20 minutes and the tone changes and suddenly it's madcap and it's almost like it's a different movie and I can't really defend that although I will say I kind of like Cicely Tyson in those scenes like like you don't get to see funny Cicely Tyson ever that's true so like you know you know there's a scene in a warehouse and they're pretending to be mannequins and it's like oh that's something you never see that much (laughs) so that you know at the end of the day like I said I love this movie for a bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with the movie itself or the quality of the movie. But having said that, as a movie, I thought it was all right. I mean, it's you know, I thought it was all right. Well, allow me to welcome you, Vince, to the show within the show that I like to call Len stomps on your childhood. No, uh, no, no. Go look. Go ahead. I know. Go ahead. Go ahead. When I saw this movie way back when, when it first came out, and I just like 
Robert Monroe Jr., who mentioned earlier in the chat, saw this movie. It wasn't at a drive-in theater, but I definitely saw it at the, the local black theater when I saw this movie <laughs> um, when I was a kid. And I remember kind of like just liking it. But I was a 14, 15-year-old kid. I'm just watching a Richard Pryor movie. Um, he's cursing a couple of times in it. Uh, I don't even necessarily know if I recognize Cecily Tyson as the woman, uh, as an actress from anything else that I've seen. Um, I'm not, I don't think, yeah, I think um, Miss Jane Pittman had already played. So I don't know if I necessarily re- recognized her from that. Um, but I remember just like, oh, okay, it's cool. You know, it's cool. It was like a, a, a dumb little sh- movie it, on a Saturday afternoon, probably when I saw it. Mm-hmm. It fit the bill. And it <clears throat> likely played before a Sonny Chiba movie at the movie, mm-hmm. at the movie theater. And that's what I was really waiting for. So, um, so it was all right. So to be fair, this may be the first time that I've seen this film since then. At least mm-hmm. it's the first time that I remember seeing the entire film since then. So I tried to watch it through those 14-year-old eyes, but I can't because I just found myself just sitting there lifeless the entire time when I was watching this movie. I did not, I mean, we're not going to talk about the direction too much. Um, even though it is strikingly different from it, from some scenes between one another. And that is because, as you know, when you do your research, you learn that this film was was made in 1979. It was and mm-hmm. it was a Richard Pryor production. He wrote the story. He didn't write the script, but he wrote the story. And you got to imagine this story was probably two pages. Um, then he had a script that was made from there and then he produced the movie right uh and it was filmed but it didn't go over well with warner brothers so they were going to try and do some reshoots and they brought that's when they brought in michael schultz who worked with richard Pryor on some of his best films um had a good relationship with with richard so they brought in michael schultz to to uh reshoot some scenes and shoot some some extra scenes for the movie however richard Pryor was on his way he was had started stir crazy with gene wilder he filmed that movie then after that movie richard Pryor famously has a huge accident um where he almost kills himself and is on the mend for close to a year so they don't return to this film until late 1980 early 1981 to do the refilming uh and those scenes which are more of the slapstick scenes that happened at the end mm-hmm. the big the the big scheme where he's dressed up as the the cowboy and everything like that have a completely different energy than mm-hmm. the, the rest of the movie so they try to liven up the film from what they show is pretty much a flat performance by Richard Pryor. We have mentioned before that in a lot of Richard Pryor's earlier films, especially when he is more the, you know, the seasoning on a movie, that he's shown a 
a great bit of nuance as an actor. We all know that he can do funny, but we've shown he's shown that he can actually play the drama or seriousness of a scene if he is directed to do so. Left to his own devices, however, Richard Pryor just falls back on the, you know, all shucks, fumbling, mumbling, you know, oh golly me, whatever type of characterization that is working hard to evoke some type of emotion, pull some type of emotion for for you. But to me, it just felt desperate and grabbing and just cloying and just annoying um i didn't think that he had any chemistry with cecily tyson cecily tyson oh my god i didn't i didn't think they had any chemistry i'm not knocking cecily tyson i don't think she's given what she's given to do she does the most with but i don't think the the you know i don't think the script is all that it's all that well written so she's not given Mm -hmm. a whole lot of lines to really work with so she's just being her and she's and she's doing her her best the kids you can tell that they are you know this is this is they didn't do some worldwide search for the greatest children's actors so they're doing they're doing their part i'm not going to knock them They're, they're kids right the but the scenes that you talk about and i've seen a couple of other people talk about where he it's them and Richard Pryor. It's nothing to me. Like it's it. They just they do not get over <laughs> to me at all. They do they do not. I don't feel it. I I feel that a lot of the acting in this movie by some of the adults is one of two speeds. They're either or they're screaming at each other. It's, there's like no middle ground. The only one that shows really any middle ground is Cecily Tyson to me. Like Richard Pryor is all just fumbling, mumbling, whatever, or, or trying to be like shucking and shucking and jiving. And every time he, whatever he's doing, it sounds like he's just trying too hard. He, he just, it just does not come across as real to me. Um, and I think part of that is because he pointedly was trying to do a switch up of his image. He was trying to do begin. Mm-hmm. This is the, the first film that begins his trek of trying to do more family friendly fare. There is some swearing in this movie. And like you said, there's commentary on that from the Cecily Tyson character. But for the most part, He is on what would now be called PG-13 mode in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, well, to be fair, I don't think Richard ever, ever really mastered this switch. But in this, his first attempt of it, it is, it's really just not there because I don't think he knows which way to go. I think he's fighting against his, his normal instincts in this movie um that coupled with a movie that like we've already said is a by the numbers script just let's get them on the road and hijinks ensue and then they get to the which to what uh should be the end of the movie but they realize what the natural story there Uh oh (laughs) right right now we've only been doing this an hour (laughs) right you know now all of a sudden like yes yes the the promised land that we have reached 
ah, but there's a bill due. So I'm like, <laughs> like what? What? All of a sudden, they they driven across country from Philadelphia right. to Seattle, and yet dude is right on their butt at every single time. Like that doesn't even yeah. like make any type of sense, right? Like so, because of uh, because there's that, he doesn't have much to w- work with, um, and it just really tries very hard to come together and like the proof that this film is is unsure of exactly what it wants to be there is a scene where Richard Pryor is um, walking down the street in the middle of the dark and the Ku Klux Klan comes up upon him now the second you see the Ku Klux Klan walk up on Richard Pryor everybody is sitting at the edge of their seats, because all oh, man, this is going to be good. Whatever happens from this, this should be good. A big comic piece in this in this film, and it, it is flat. The coup- well, you're you're saying it's flat. They don't actually show the money shot of him convincing the Ku Klux Klan to come help. Exactly, they don't. They don't do that. And then when the moment of supposed comeuppance, when the Ku Klux Klan helps to push this this stuck bus out of the mud and they get all the mud thrown up all up on them, you're waiting for, okay, well, there's going to be at least some great line right here. Right. And the Ku Klux Klan guy's like, I don't think we should tell anybody about this. Yeah. Wah, yeah. Wah. yeah it's just yeah. And, and and to me that is endemic of the entire exercise of this film it is just uh, unfortunately for Richard for what he was trying to do uh, and unfortunately because of his lifestyle it was destined to be it was a failed experiment and nothing of it comes comes together I hear you for championing this for the image of Cecily Tyson that it presents, but I unfortunately feel that her efforts are wasted uh, in this film. Well, you know, like I said, I can't argue with you, but so much. I, I do think, again, if 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 we both agree that the last half hour it goes off the rails, mm-hmm. we only have an hour to work with. Right, like there's only an hour that we can even debate. Mm-hmm. And to your energy critique, I will also grant you, I actually thought it was snappier the first 15, 20 minutes before he gets on the bus. Like when you see Joe Braxton as this sort of low level criminal mm. kind of, na- you know, there's a first scene with him and Paul Mooney, right. which I've always kind of had fondness for. And then, you know, even when he's in and out, you know, the court scene and yeah, I can't really fight with you that much. Again, I'm I'm like the blinders I have for this film. I feel you are, 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 are remarkable. But again, regardless, I do think just as and you kind of tipped your hand and said it when you were taught like that, you didn't even recognize Cicely Tyson. Mm-hmm. Like this is a role that Cicely Tyson, it seemed 
at least to my knowledge, very rarely got to play. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, like she was always yeah. in period pieces. You you know, she's like barefoot and it's a rag on her head and she's very strong and noble. Yes, sounder. And just again, Cicely Tyson at this speed mm-hmm. is a speed that I think is is worth kind of put putting up on a shelf. Yeah. Like I always think of this and and Sounder and even in Sounder, you know, Sounder is one of them dirt road barefoot movies, but Paul Winfield loves him some Cicely Tyson mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know, so but hey, look, I can't fight you. I'm all about the soundtrack. Speaking of the soundtrack. Speaking of the soundtrack. Let's take the pin out so, of the so story. So are, are, are we finished? Are we finished with the review? I believe we have reached the climax of the Go review. Go ahead. You can ask, you ask me. Would, I ask you, you. would you, Vincent, recommend people watch Bustin' Loose? I actually would for the reasons that I've mentioned. And unlike you, I like Richard Pryor with the kids. And I also like Cicely Tice. But it's a real soft yes. Mm. It's a real soft yes. It's about a, a C plus. Hmm. I you know and I, you I want to rock with you with the Richard Pryor and the kids things, um, but the only two uh, films that I can think of that fit that criteria would be this and the toy, and I di- I can't stand the toy. Well, yeah, but compare uh, right, but but that's okay a perfect, compared to this, exa- the like toy compared is to the cane, but I, I, that's still being said, I can't recommend that you watch Bust and Loose. If you want to see Richard Pryor in true for the kids mode, go get the DVD of Pryor's Place. Okay. All right. There you go. So now. There you go. There's our review. I now give you the saga of Vince and the Bust and Loose soundtrack. Before you do, and I'll edit this. Okay. Miss Makiba, who with nerd rage signed on late into our (laughs) review. Uh, points out that my 12-year-old son's only comment after this film was <laughs> Cecily Tyson looks like the mom on Mixed Dish. He was not all that impressed. From the mouths of babes. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Now. Now. The year was 1994. Had a little job out of college, had an internship my senior year, had turned into a job. In retrospect, it wasn't a bad job. I was like a research assistant at a PR firm for nonprofits, basically, you know, kind of help these hippies not look like terrorists. <laughs> uh, no, honest, no, that was actually the job. Like, that was actually the job. Like, people thought these people were terrorists. It's like, no, maybe, you know, do something with your hair and you won't look so crazy. But I was a young man and it was a job and it was like off, you know, just office politicky stuff. And I said, I didn't want to do it anymore. And then the hubris and arrogance of somebody who lived with their parents, because <laughs> I had moved back in after I graduated and I knew I wasn't going to starve to death. I quit. Of course. I quit my job. Lynn, I had, it's like that John Ramada cover of Spider-Man where Spider-Man threw his costume in the trash and said, Spider-Man no more. I literally took my tie off and threw it in a trash can and said, 
No more. All right. So I get a job. I've mentioned this before. I used to work at a record store, mm-hmm. Record Masters. So I got this job at Record Masters. And I say this without hesitation as a person that we, we've got this podcast. We are building it. You know, like we can't really pay no bills with it. But this is a job. And my day job, people, as my father used to talk about, they pay me to talk to people about Octavia Butler and Langston Hughes. Like that is my actual job. I say without hesitation that the almost two years that I worked at Record Masters was the best job I've ever had in my entire life. So worked at Record Masters and because it was an independent record store Mm -hmm. and we just talked about music all day long. It was me. It was three middle aged white guys. And it was a young white woman who was the daughter of the owner. These demographics are going to be important in a moment. And we would just sit and everything like I learned about rock music and classic music, classical music and country music. And quietly, my boss, like my godfather knows more about jazz than anyone I've ever met. But my manager, Mike, was a close second. Okay. And we would just sit in there and talk about like I talked about seeing Yafet Koto when um, Homicide was filming in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. This was that period because there was this bagel shop next to us. That had this amazing coffee and okay. we would just drink coffee all day, talk about records, talk about music. Now then, for our younger listeners, you have to understand the, the, the purpose of the record store, like the independent record store. The music was a little bit more expensive. You could go to the mall and get stuff cheaper, but the record store was for expertise. Exactly. Like, this is the mid to late 90s. There was no internet. There was no nothing. Like, if you had a question, you had to find someone who had the knowledge base. Mm -hmm. So people would come into the record store, and they had questions, and they would do this, and ask this, and that, and the other. And as the black guy, my job was as, frankly, the black guy. Like, I was the hip-hop dude. So you had a hip hop question, you came to me, but remember this is the nineties. Right. So because I was the hip hop dude, I was also the R&B and soul dude. Of course. And like I, like I joked about earlier, I was the seventies jazz dude. So like somebody would come in, it's like, yeah, I heard this song. It's like, you know, and I heard you do, 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 do. Like, what is that dude? It's like, oh, that's think twice. That's Donald Byrd stepping in tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a record store dude, it's like the car salesman. Like a good car salesman sells you one car, but a great car salesman sells you 10 cars. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's stepping to tomorrow, but you should also check out spaces and places. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did all day. You know, just sold records, listened to music, learned about music, this, that, and the other. Now, that also meant you had to always be learning. Like you are basically researching and learning stuff. And there were two ways that the record store really reinforced that. First were promos. And the promos are just what they sound like. The record companies would send boxes of promotional material to record stores and they would, we would divvy them out and you would listen to it. And, and again, I'm the black guy. So I got all the black stuff. So like, 
I have promos of like Michelle Indigo Cello's first album and and and, and D'Angelo's first album and all you know um like I always like like my copy of of Old Dirty Bastards Return to the Thirty Six Chambers mm-hmm. the dirty version there's a piece because we would put tape on the stuff right that, and say okay well this is for this guy this like I have a piece of tape a masking tape across the cover and it says old dirty vents because it was on my pile of CDs. So that was the one way. And that was the above war above board way. The sort of, we didn't talk about it that much way. The way CDs work, because remember these CDs after a while, you were able to return the CDs for credit. From okay. the companies, mm-hmm. and but but it was like pennies on a dollar, which you would get in credit. Like it was more trouble to return it than not. And then you fooled around; that stuff would go out of print, mm-hmm. and they actually didn't have, I guess, the barcode information anymore. So unofficially, we would go into the CD collections and listen to stuff mm. and take stuff. And that's how I kind of worked my way through all this 70s soul stuff. Like, like all this, like so many CDs I own, I got them that way. Like these are sort of out of print. Nobody returned them, but I need to be ready when somebody comes in and asks about, you you know, I don't know, like what's the Marvin Gaye album that he made when he got divorced? It's like, oh, that's here, my dear. So that's how I really get introduced to Roberta Flack. Okay. So like so like I know who Roberta Flack is, but you know, I'm surrounded by MCs and beat diggers and musicians. No one ever really was talking about Roberta Flack around me. Her first three albums, First Take, Chapter Two, Quiet Fire, I think are some of the greatest soul albums ever made. And when we talk about 70s soul and and we talk about Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and Earth, Wind and Fire and Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack should absolutely be in that conversation. And this is how I, again, kind of learned about Roberta Flack. So now I'm deep into Roberta Flack and I'm looking for Roberta Flack stuff. But again, this is the Wild West of the 90s. Stuff is out of print. You can't find stuff, this, that and the other. I start looking into busting loose the okay. soundtrack because this is because this is a roberta flack album that you don't really hear about and and she wrote the, all the music on there and luther vandross is involved in fact my favorite luther vandross song you stop you stop loving me roberta flack performed it on the soundtrack before luther did on his album exactly yeah so this turns into a thing for me, like I'm trying to find the Bustin' Loose soundtrack. Bustin' Loose soundtrack never made it to CD. Nope. You know, it's 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 the soundtrack to a movie that nobody really likes that much, and it <laughs> vanished. So it becomes my grail. Mm. Like I need to find the Bustin' Loose soundtrack, and 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 this goes on. You know, th- this is my thing. I'm looking for the Bustin' Loose soundtrack. So, time goes on. Okay. Get married, go to grad school, become an adult, move to Philly. You know, I'm actually a grown-up, grown-up now. Always love record stores, obviously. 
because of my experience. I love music and, and they're, you know, you know, it's like, you know, amoeba music on the West coast and, and like, you know, dusty grooves in Chicago, my beloved sound garden mm. in Baltimore, uh, here in, here in Philly, the dearly departed sound of music, sound of market, rather sound of market. Funko love man. these record stores. Whole time I'm doing it, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking for, you know, again, over a decade, mm-hmm. I'm looking for busting loose. Meanwhile, my family vacation every other year, go to Martha's Vineyard. Yes, I know. Rent a house, eat ice cream, sit on the beach, read a book, go to Martha's Vineyard. Between Edgartown and Vineyard Haven, there's a record store that's about as big as the room that I'm in. And Lynn, this was the best damn record store. Like, like it was like, again, I only went like every other year, but like every other year I would go in there and they would have exactly what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, here in Philly, when, when me and Daryl had the, the, the radio show, we got into Charles Stepney. Like, we were big into Charles Stepney. Like, we were Charles Stepney, dude. And he was a producer in the 70s, and he worked with Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, 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 and the, the, the Fifth Dimension, and kind of, you know, lot, lots of lush strings, and they called it Champagne Soul. But, like, his brainchild was the Rotary Connection. Oh, wow, yeah. Which was, that. you know, the group that Minnie Ripperton was in. Mm-hmm. Albums never sold anything. Nope. Low print runs, albums, but you know, I download the music. Going to Above Ground Records, that was the name of the record store, I find three pristine copies of Rotary Connection albums. Wow. Wow. One year I go, um, my favorite Wes Anderson movie is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zazu. Mm-hmm. Which is basically a Jacques Cousteau riff. Right. Like like Steve Zazu is a Jacques Cousteau guy. And Mark Mothersborough, I think is the composer's name, the dude from Devo, made the incidental music for it. And it's like this really cool electronica music. And when you read interviews with him, he says he based it on the music from Jacques Cousteau. Like, you remember that cool Jacques Cousteau music? Mm-hmm. Here we are in the lake and we see the fish and they're like, boop, 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 boop. And it was like the cool, it was like flutes and, 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 and keyboards. Oh, here we look at the tortoises. Wander into Above Ground. It's a collection of the Jacques Cousteau music. So, like, that kind of thing every other year. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, you see where I'm going with this. About 10 years ago, I'm in there and and we're looking because because at this point, my nephew's a, a, a teenager, Mike, Michael. And, you know, Mike fashions himself like a young digger. And so we're in there and we're looking through stuff. And I look over and for you, keep those keeping count 10 years, because even when the Internet came, it was hard to find copies. Yeah. It was never digitized. Lynn, I go in there. And it's just a copy of Bustin' Loose sitting there. It's just there, this beautiful copy. <laughs> Hand to God. And like I said, I was with Mike. You can ask Mike. I go up to the counter and I asked the dude, I said, yo, are you a ghost? <laughs> like, is, 
Like, is this heaven? Like, like, why is it always exactly what I want right here? Mm-hmm. And this is what he peeped me to. So it's Martha's Vineyard. So like I said, me and, you know, me and my family, we just kind of rent a house every other year. But it's like for real rich black people that own homes on Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. like th- third, fourth generation, like actual people. And the thing that you know and I know, unfortunately, is that what happens when these houses go to the next generation is that people clean them out. That's right. So what was happening is that you had all of these people, I mean, not just black people, obviously, but that's how come like it had like the rotary connection is there. People would have these these albums in their summer homes. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, someone has died and now they're cleaning out the house and above ground was the record store. So he was like this one stop shop for all of this music. Wow. And that's how he, he, so that's how he always, so last part, the coda to that story. So I get this Bustin' Loose soundtrack. At the time I'm in grad school, I don't have a turntable because I vowed to myself I would not buy a turntable until I got my PhD. Like that was just one more distraction that I wasn't going to do. But as soon as I did, and sure enough, like I defended on one day and like a week later, I got one of them turntables with the USB cord. And the first album that I digitized and put on my, you know, my, like my, 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 um, iPod was the Bustin' Loose soundtrack. Wow. So when I think about the music from Bustin' Loose, I think about the record store. I think about traveling to all these different places. Mm-hmm. I think about the record store that may or may not have been owned by an angel. <laughs> I think about, you know, finishing grad school. Like I think about all that. And it's like pure joy whenever yeah. I hear the music from Bustin' Loose, which is why I could never, ever judge Bustin' Loose and Bustin' Loose is bulletproof and it is 808 well done well done that was a great story vincent that was an excellent excellent story man the power uh and the timelessness and the time the time machine that is music um that was really cool that was really cool though. so there you go Thank you for sharing. Now, with all that, y'all can judge whether or not I'm a good person to listen to about busting loose. <laughs> Look, your mileage may vary, ladies and gentlemen. Go check out busting <laughs> loose. What do I care? Uh, before we tell you what's coming up next week here on the Michelle Mission, ladies and gentlemen, we invite you because we got a very special month coming your way. We invite mm-hmm. you all to. Hit us up if you have any questions, thoughts, and concerns. You can email us at michellemission at gmail.com. Like and follow us on all the social media, Instagram, Twitter. Subscribe on uh, YouTube at Michelle Mission. And go to the Michelle Mission website, michellemission.com. Two men, one podcast, every black film ever made, where you can subscribe to the Michelle Mission Dispatch, our weekly newsletter, to find out all the things that is happening here in the world of Michelle. And while you're at the website, hit swag and check out all of the cool designs that we have coming your way. Um, 
by way of our good friends at T Public. The Michelle Mission is a proud member of the Podglomerate, thepodglomerate.com curated podcast for your listening pleasure. Um, next month is April. And yes, sir. A is for Afrofuturism. This is when Vince and I delve into the world of black science fiction uh, for you, ladies and gentlemen. And oh, we have a month in store for you. And it kicks off with my selection. I am mm-hmm. digging not too far in the crates. As a matter of fact, I am just jumping two years from busting loose to the mm-hmm. year 1983 where director Lizzie Borden don't let the name fool you brought us a piece of dystopian LGBTQ delight that she called Born in Flames Um, this is a Afrofuturistic film that promises to strike deep into the hearts of Vincent and Lynn next week when we review it here on the Michelle Mission. All right? Looking forward to that. I am as well. Uh, until then, ladies and gentlemen, he's Vincent, I'm Lynn, and in parting, we say... We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>